Welcome to Money Talks, a series of one-to-one interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. This episode features Martin Bish, the co-founder and CEO of the Bristol-based fulfilment centre, Habu. Martin describes how, having grown up in the East End of London, he developed an interest in computer programming and gaming, skills he transferred into the field of logistics. Having launched just a few years ago, Hubu specialises in smaller clients and operates a micro-warehouse model that generates quicker and more bespoke fulfilment outcomes for its growing list of e-commerce clients. Martin, great to see you. Thanks for joining me on Money Talks. Tell me in a nutshell what your company does. We store pick, pack and post on behalf of e-commerce sellers. So um, the, the guys that you buy from online, particularly in the last couple of years, um, you know, people have been stuck at home buying from people online. We actually ship that stuff out. So if you make stuff in your garden shed and sell it online, Hubu can take care of all the logistics, all the packaging, all the difficult stuff that really stops businesses from growing. Uh, we can. Um, we're unique in doing it for a much broader range of clients. Someone, someone's always done that. They've always been fulfillment companies, which is what a company like ours is called. But they've tended to work with big clients, um, clients that have relatively few items and that ship them in huge volumes. We work with clients of all sizes, complex clients, you know, clients that sell secondhand or, or, or a vintage, um, small clients, people that do sell from their bedroom. So a really broad range. What happened to your business during lockdown? Clearly, Retail sales across the UK online grew from about 15 to 20 percent to 30, 35 percent, depending on your definition. There was a clear leap forward. A lot of that went to Amazon and the other big online giants. Did your company see growth commensurate with the growth of smaller firms doing business online? We, we did, but we, um, I mean, when Amazon grows, we grow. A lot of the clients that we um, ship for, they sell on Amazon. So it doesn't really matter which of the many channels they're selling on, whether it's their shop, whether it's Amazon, eBay, they're often using us to ship that item out. So wherever online sales benefits, we benefit. But it was, it was up and down. I think many people just think that if you were working uh, online, you were doing fabulously. But it really depends what you were working in. So early in lockdown, um, uh, obviously, there were, there were explosions in gardening equipment or home ed kits. Knitting. Knitting. No, knitting did fabulously Baking. well. <laughs> did you bake? Uh, I, I did bake. I, I learned to cook. I learned to make sourdough. Oh, wow. It's almost a cliche now. But, you, um, me, and half the country. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I did. So, um, p- people bought those kinds of things, and then that gradually faded, and, and they moved on to other, other types of purchases. And then there were the big ones that related specifically to COVID. So, initially, um, you had lots of hand gels. Uh, we had one client that um, had a, 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 a small shop um, selling pet stuff. Hangel was one of his products. It wasn't doing particularly well, um, but he knew the fellow that owned the Hangel uh, factory. And so when, when he saw what was going on, he cornered the market in Hangel and made more in the next two months than he'd made in the last three years. So, so we saw lots of kind of quite clever entrepreneurs moving swiftly, but then the Hangels died out. Masks exploded. We had one client that was, um, was uh, getting jets over from China to bring masks in. Their mask collapsed, and obviously now we're seeing lots of, um, lots of testing kits. And all the e-commerce that sits beneath it, but it's, it's been very spiky, which is a challenge to manage. So the company has grown during lockdown. And do you think, we're never going back, are we? I mean, the, the, the world has changed. The way we do retail now forever has changed. Where do you think we're going to get to in terms of percentage of sales that are online? I mean, there are lots of things you can't buy online, and those are the things that will stay on the high street. You can't buy a haircut. You know, you're unlikely, I think, to buy a house 
we've already had large companies try to create online estate agents, and yet still we pay through the nose for estate agents uh, on the high street. So there are lots of things that will stay on the high street, but anything you can buy online, you will buy online. And the challenges that, that we had previously, things like the ability to try stuff on, that's been overcome by, by free returns. People simply uh, buy three of the same item and then ship two back, and it costs them nothing. So I think there's probably very little that we won't end up buying online in the long term. Tell us about the physical side of the business back in Bristol. What does it look like? Um, so it's, we've got four buildings in Bristol, um, one in the Netherlands, one we've just taken on in Spain, and we're, we're um, moving out across Europe. But it looks, it looks unlike a traditional warehouse. So we, we really revolutionise the way the warehouse floor works. There are some fundamental problems with warehousing, the biggest one being that it makes people miserable. It has them walking miles and miles every day. So there was some data a year or two, two ago that was released from a very big fulfilment company whose name shall remain nameless, but everybody will know them. Um, and they said that their pickers walk 10 miles a day. Yeah. So that's a fairly depressing job. So what we did was we, we created what's called a micro warehouse. And this is really the, the, um, the brainchild of Paul Dodd, my co-founder. Um, the micro warehouse collapses um, uh, the, the business into a smaller warehouse that is run by a single individual. So that might be a picker or a packer, uh, the other big company I, I didn't mention. Um, for us, they manage the whole thing, more like a retail unit, all of the right. inbound, all of the outbound, the picking, the packing, the posting. And crucially, they engage with the client as well. So they get that feedback loop that lets them know they're doing a wonderful job or, or, or helps them if they're not. And that created a sense of ownership for the employees, and so it changed the way the warehouse. It's like somebody works. building a vintage car rather than working on a production line, right? Yeah. So we don't currently employ um, automation, which is the standard response to that distance, that travelling problem. Instead, we just have a small amount of stock, and we pick from that and then replenish the stock regularly. And that changes the economics of fulfilment. It means that instead of someone walking ten miles, they walk under half a mile. That's 95% of the most expensive part of your business, the human being, that you get back using the model that we've developed. Um, and so it's, our warehouses are typically happy places with low human churn, with, with people that engage with clients, where every picker is, in fact, also a customer service representative. And you can use this kind of micro model with people walking shorter distances, obviously, crucially, uh, for the bottom line of the business, but also the, the mental health, if you like, of the people that work for you because you're carrying a smaller range of products because you're only working for bespoke companies who use you as the fulfillment center. It's on a smaller scale. Actually, no, it, it works the other way around. So cool. we, when we built it originally, we thought we're, we're broadening the market largely down to smaller clients, and that's what happened. Our first 60 clients were relatively small clients working from home. But, of course, when, when larger companies realize that this model really works and it allows them to engage with operational staff, it makes for happier operational staff, and it's generally less expensive, they wanted to work for us. So we had a problem to solve, which was how do we keep a low stock footprint and therefore a micro warehouse instead of a huge warehouse and still keep the short walking distances? And the answer was simply to build replenishment facilities that every few days replenish the micro hub. So the economies of the micro hub stay in place. The wonderful place to work that it is remains um, and then the replenishment just, just speeds up uh, according to the size of the client. So it's so, a very rapid turnover of stock then. Yeah, that, so that, that takes a lot of logistical skill. and It does, and a lot of software. So the first thing we did was to vertically integrate all of the software that sits in the, in the, in the stack, the fulfillment stack. And that's why nothing had changed, because fulfillment companies were either warehousing companies um, or they were software companies. Uh, they were rarely both. So without having control of both, both of those things, you can't change what the warehouse floor looks like. So we brought in all the software, redesigned it so that it suits the hub model 
and the replenishment model that we added to the hub model to allow for larger clients. And that gives us, I think, the most flexible model in the world. Automation limits what you can pick, pack, and post. A robot can only do so much before you need a different kind of robot. Human beings, of course, don't need calibration. You just put different kinds of items in front of them, and, and they'll pick them. The best example of this is, um, is re-commerce, which is the sale of secondhand and vintage. It's growing at 20 times the speed of e-commerce, so it's an incredibly fast-growing sector. Fulfillment typically won't touch it because it's incredibly complex. Every That's SKU, right. every item is unique. That's right. Um, some of our largest clients are re-commerce clients. Uh, in Leeds, we have a client called Vintage Cash Cow. They're, they're a huge client. I mean, I, I probably shouldn't share their numbers, but they're growing at a phenomenal pace. And what do they sell? Everything from terrifying Victorian dolls to uh, Victorian cameras, vintage in about 20 different ca categories. And I think we're probably the only fulfillment company in the world that could work with them. So we, we can deal with that kind of complexity because we developed a system around humans rather than a system that would get humans out of the process. This is really interesting. We've seen a real concentration of capitalism in recent years, particularly the big tech giants, particularly in your sector, Amazon. And what you're saying to me, Martin, is that by smarter, faster replenishment and working at a smaller scale, you're able to pinch just a little bit of Amazon's business, but more than enough for you to make a tidy business yourself. Yes, we've grown about 40x in the last two years. So um, the growth is huge, and it's because of the flexibility of the model giving us uh, a wider range of clients that we can work with. But also clients love that ability to, to work with people at the operational level that they wouldn't get elsewhere. And the, the economics make it viable. But it's, it's also something we can roll out really quickly for us to move into a new warehouse just requires as a, a building that has electricity and, and the internet. Uh, normally, a fulfillment company would need maybe 12 months to, to set themselves up in that warehouse. Special smooth concrete floors for all the forklift trucks and all yep. the rest of it. You don't have any of that because it's smaller scale. Yeah, exactly. So the replen warehouse has a few other requirements, but, but the rest really don't. So we launched in the Netherlands within two months from signing on the dotted line for the warehouse to, to shipping our first units. Because of this smaller scale, are there certain product lines, certain companies you wouldn't work with because the goods are too big, too bulky, too difficult, they don't fit your bespoke small-scale model? T typically really large items like white goods. So anything that is e-commerceable up to about a meter cubed is something that we'd usually be happy to work with. Beyond that, it really doesn't work with the hub model, occupies too much space, creates walking distance, requires forklifts and so on. Tell us about yourself. What's your background? How did you get to become an entrepreneur? What is it inside you that makes you determined to work for yourself? Um, so my, my background was actually as a program. I was a games programmer for about 20 years and an entrepreneur for the last 20. And I think the reason I worked for myself was because, I mean, I, I, when, where I grew up and, and when I grew up, I really didn't have too many options. I left school when I was uh, 16. I, there weren't too many other things for me. Where to did you grow up? I grew up in the East End of London. Um, in a not particularly nice uh, part of the East End of London. Uh, my mother was a single parent. We had lots of challenges. I needed to earn money as you know, quickly as I could. There was no opportunity for me to go into education afterwards. So I taught myself how to program and started publishing um, computer games. Um, and then eventually moved into web technology, launched uh, to the UK's first dating sites, sold those, uh, was involved in the launch of a charity payment provider that I still work with. Um, and eventually, uh, um, my last business was a rapid market research software as a service uh, business. And I was very bored running that for somebody else when my friend Paul, Paul Dodd, who I co-founded with this, uh, was, having, was having this idea and thought there was something interesting there and started playing around. Small-scale fulfillment. Yeah, I mean, he, he got himself a, a, a room in a safe store in Bath. Safe store is a sort of consumer-facing storage, like, like yellow storage. Mm. 
So it was a room the size of a small office um, and just started playing around with this business idea and got to a point where I thought it was quite exciting. He had no customers, but he'd written some interesting software and come up with a, a very interesting approach to fulfillment and decided it wasn't really for him, the entrepreneurial game, um, and that he was going to shut it down. But I thought it was brilliant, so I suggested we do it together and I'd help him commercialize uh, the whole thing. And, and, and so we did, and, and it's grown fantastically. So tell us when the business launched, and tell us what you can tell us about the trajectory of your, your revenues, staff, and where you see it going. So we launched about four years ago, um, really just as a hobby, trying to perfect Pool System. Launched commercially three years ago, which was, which was really just taking out some advertising on Google and not doing very much besides, except picking up the phone if anybody, if anybody called. The calls we were getting were very exciting because they weren't... Um, they weren't, here's a, here's, a, here's a quote, can you beat it? They were, thank God you exist, where do I send the boxes? Because there was no competition for what we were doing. Um, and so we had about 60 clients when we decided to raise funding. Found that really difficult because it's a highly operational business. It has lots of people. Venture capital doesn't like lots of people, right. typically. We had, we had venture capitalists visit our, our tiny safe store and leave visibly shaken by <laughs> um, the size of the operation and, and the, the p- people busy inside it. And eventually stumbled on some forward-thinking uh, VCs that were willing to take a punt on us. Um, and that, so it was a challenge, but we got that cash. And after that, we grew at such a rate that, that we were really just chasing VCs away. How many people work for Habu now? It's, it's about 400 now. I have to be careful because we're, we're hiring about 100 a month. So I can't keep up with exactly where we are, but it's about 400. It's about 40 in the Netherlands, most of them over here. We've got a few in Spain now, and we're gradually beginning to grow that. But it'll be, it'll be 600 probably by Christmas. And the centre of your operations is still Bristol? It's still Bristol, only because it was down the road from Bath, which yeah. is where myself and Paul live. So we thought that was a, a good place to have our first warehouse. Quite an entrepreneurial place, isn't it? It's, it's got a real buzz to it, yeah. yeah. Outside of London, it's one of the more exciting places to get started, I think. We raised cash in London. It's still difficult to raise cash outside of London. And we're now moving to London. So our next UK uh, warehouse will be outside of London, followed by the Midlands and then somewhere up north. What do you think Amazon think of you? I, my guess is Amazon don't think of us at all, ever. I think we're, we're just, we're, we're flying. We'll keep on. it that way. Uh, yeah, I th- I, well, if, if everything works out, we won't be able to keep it that way. But we, don't, we, we sort of, we actually use Amazon. So we use yeah. Amazon's fulfillment, which is an independent product that they sort of sell. You know, we, we fulfill for clients that, that sell on Amazon. So insofar as we have any relationship with Amazon, it's very positive so far. And what's the future for Hubu? What could this become? Do you have competitors in the UK or elsewhere who are doing what you do, you've been very successful. I'm sure there are people who want to imitate you because you haven't got any particular IP, any particular intellectual property or patent, have you? It's just a way of doing things. It is, but it's phenomenally complex. We, we had no idea how complex it was or we'd never have started to begin with. Um, and so it's probably a greater challenge for someone to do what we've done without some IP to refer to and try to figure out a way around. Um, there are competitors out there. They tend to be traditional fulfillment companies. Um, there are a couple of big players from the States coming over here. People are getting very lazy with fulfillment. The way they're tending to expand is to simply use third-party fulfillment companies that already exist in a space and utilize their brand. So, so the big US player that's coming over here is doing that. You can't control quality that way. It's a major part of the relationship with your customer, isn't it? How you receive the goods, what condition they're in, how quickly you receive them, yeah. whether there are no mistakes. Exactly. 
and as long as you're controlling everything, then you know, errors will be made, but you can fix them, or you can make sure that you, know, you respond appropriately or that the systems are fixed. If you're running your business selling somebody else's fulfillment, which most modern fulfillment companies are, um, just utilizing large traditional fulfillment companies, you've no control over that. It's a real danger if you come here from the States or from anywhere else where you own the entire stack and you now utilize somebody else's operational component in that stack. It means you don't have control over quality anymore. And I suspect what will happen is it's going to hit their reviews hard and it's going to have an impact on their US sales as well as their European sales. So um, I don't see anybody doing anything that we're worried about right now. And we're we're also layering on tiers of other services. So we, we, we've historically seen ourselves as full-stack fulfillment. But actually, it's much more exciting if you, if you think of yourself as full-stack e-commerce, full-stack direct-to-consumer e-commerce. People spend their days sitting in our dashboard, now, our software-as-a-service dashboard. They should be able to utilize that for other products, the ability to manage all of their channels, not just to manage their fulfillment, but to change products, to buy fintech products. We already have some, some uh, financial products we've layered on top of the ones that we've got, which are high margin products, there's a high take up. So there's a lot of additional products that can be layered on top of it. And that's where Paul's technical background, my software background really comes in, being able to add those additional, primarily software or, or fintech products. How about your East End background? Does that help? It's, it's made me tenacious and hardworking and um, you know I don't nothing gets in my way, nothing stops me. But it's also made me, um, uh, and I say me, but Paul feels very similarly, and his background is not that dissimilar to my own. Very concerned that the people that work for us should be should treated properly and paid yeah. properly. Uh, and we work really hard. Because you know what it's like at the sharp end. Yeah, exactly. And I think the end, it's just got sharper and sharper over the last yeah. 10 or 15 years. Those kinds of jobs, the wages haven't increased. Meanwhile, you know, for the rest of us, that they've tended to go up. Meanwhile, the cost of rent these days is ridiculous. It's really difficult for people to make ends meet that are doing those kinds of jobs. They're, they're underrated and they're underpaid. Um, and they're typically miserable. And we're trying to work, work out ways of ensuring that none of those things are true of our business. Let's just go back a moment, Martin, if I may. It strikes me that your sort of bespoke small-scale model uh, can grow without limit because you can just replicate the little fulfillment units, if you like, so you don't lose the essence of what you're doing. But what is so complex about what you're doing that makes it hard for others to copy you? Why it is tough? So, so you're right about the replicability, if that's a word. It's, it's like <laughs> it a, is now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Lego brick of fulfillment. So assuming yeah. the Lego brick works, then you can stick as many of them together as you that's like. Right. Actually, when you start to stick them together, you need kind of in, inter-hub services. The hub model requires these bits inter-hubs that make the whole thing work. So that adds additional complexity, getting stuff to and from the hub, um, taking care of packaging, making sure they have all the packaging they require. But fundamentally, what makes it more complex is our decision to open up the market. If we work with the kinds of clients that work with traditional fulfillments, they'll have three or four SKUs, you know, three or four products, um, and they'll be selling hundreds of thousands of those products. So they all sit neatly on a shelf. Um, you know, there are only three products, so it's very difficult to make any kinds of mistakes. If, if it's Amazon, for instance, there won't be any bespoke packaging involved. Amazon uses their yeah. own packaging for everything. So we'll do f for the client whatever they require. If they have a seven-stage packing process because it's a beauty product, well, our hub manager will take care of that. Now, our hub manager might have 20 or 30 small clients on their hub. Yeah. If it's a big client, it might just be one. And then they'll have all sorts of channels that they integrate with, not just one. It might be selling across 10 channels, um, all managed by that, that single person, again, on that, on that particular hub. And then the actual SKUs themselves, because we work with re-commerce, because we work with second-hand, because we work with um, clients that work with high volume of SKUs, you know, smaller businesses are typically trying more things all the time, and so, so their SKUs will often change. 
they deliver that kind of complexity. It's like it's bespoke packaging times the number of SKUs times the number of channels uh, equals massive complexity. Actually, add times the number of couriers to that, and you've got huge complexity. And we, we manage that and ensure quality levels via our software, but we rely, we rely on highly trained, brilliant people um, to, to make that work ultimately. And that's a challenge as well. People mm. who work in warehouses don't expect that. And some people are ready for it. They love that sense of ownership. Um, and other people aren't. It's, it's a surprise. They come in thinking that they're going to be packing boxes again, and that's not what we want. What you're doing is you're making warehouse workers into sort of frontline customer-facing staff. They're not physically seeing the customer, but they're working with a client that they will know and care about and have a relationship with because they're working for a relatively small number of companies. So, but let me put this to you, for all the kind of clever, clever intricacies of the software and what you're doing at your fulfillment centers, be they in Bristol or elsewhere, you're still basically moving goods around the country, right? So you still got to deal with, with you know, lorries and drivers uh, and all of that, which brings me to the obvious question, how's it been for you, HGV-wise, fuel-wise, in recent weeks? So we don't do the last mile, we give it to couriers. Okay. So of course, if they're hit, we're hit. So yeah. you know, we had lots of problems at the end of last year, the Kent COVID variant led to France closing their doors and you know, lorries lined up outside of our doors with, with nowhere to go. Brexit, I mean, not Brexit per se, but, but the handling of it by couriers led to huge challenges. I mean, simple things like them calling us GB instead of UK over their, their um, application programmer interface that we hook into shut us down for a morning. So they were, oh they were making, uh, and actually we were UK two days later, they were changing things so rapidly, not quite knowing how to respond to what was going on. All of that had a big impact on us. And of course, our clients complain to us. They don't complain to the When are we going to decide what to call our country? Um, I mean, it's, <laughs> try explaining it to somebody from America or France. Yeah, it's, it's, I British mean, Isles, it's completely hopeless. Great Britain, Northern Ireland. And I really don't mind as long as they just decide <laughs> yeah. and, and get it done with. Um, so whenever couriers suffer, we suffer. And couriers have suffered horribly in the last couple of years. I mean, some of them have literally melted down. And our, our clients look to us when that happens. When, of course, we have no control over what happens when we give it to the courier. So we try to communicate to our clients. We let them know the state of couriers. Um, there's lots of detail in, in our dashboard that helps them understand where any particular package is. And they can also reach out to their hub managers who will often have that kind of detail. Um, ultimately, their first line of, 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 of defense really is the hub manager that has all the detail on, on them, on their units, and crucially on their transactions. And you said they don't see the hub managers, but the number of clients that come to the warehouse specifically to see hub managers is extraordinary. That The client I mentioned earlier, Vintage Cash Cow, they came down a couple of weeks ago. They have eight people that work on their hub to take those eight people out to dinner. Wow. I don't imagine any pickers and packers in the world previously had people travel from Leeds to, to Bristol you know, to take them out to dinner. But they're appreciated. They should be, but, but more crucially, they are. Is anyone else anywhere in the world doing what you're doing this kind of small scale bespoke fulfillment powered by really smart artificial intelligence if they are we haven't heard about them but it's not obvious and i guess we haven't really been talking very loudly about it thus far we're confident enough now that we're willing to to discuss it openly and also we know, we know how difficult it is to achieve so good luck to anybody that, that's having a go it's obviously a privately owned company. Are you looking to raise more cash? Um, we will raise probably about another 12 months. We'll have done most of Europe. We're doing five countries this year, 10 next year. Um, and we can sort of do the tail end of Europe whilst we look at the states. So we'll be, we'll be doing another very more significant raise um, in about 12 months. So you're in a very interesting space, if you like. How good is the UK at this kind of 
business, this combination of logistics, tech, fulfillment, is this somewhere we, we have particular strengths as a country? I'm not, I'm not sure that it is. Um, I don't know that anybody's doing it brilliantly. The French do the automation piece of it very well. They've invested heavily in that. We've been underpaying and undertraining people for decades um, in this country. Fulfillment in particular treats them like light bulbs, plugs them in, they burn out, throws them away and plugs another one in. Doesn't spend any time training them, allows them to churn at a tremendous rate and then invests in agencies or, or other ways of just bringing in staff at, at a really high pace. No one's spending the money to bring the best out um, in people, which is, and that's why I, I sort of feel there's maybe, maybe we're experiencing something of a reckoning now. Maybe that's the way it should be. People will have to pay better. And when they pay better, they'll have to start, start training people and finding better jobs for them because they won't be able to afford that churn. Final question, where's your business going to be in 10 years? Uh, in 10 years, 10 years from now, I don't, I don't think I'll know where the business is then. I'm sure I'll be out of it. I'm getting old, but seven or eight years from now, old. <laughs> <laughs> seven or eight years from now, it'll be, it'll be worth, I, I hope, 100 billion and I'll be looking for somebody to buy it. Good luck. Martin, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Liam. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening to this. Do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily television show, On The Money, at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News, Britain's news channel.